All right, we are in Psalm 139 today, 139 part two, I would say. And uh, we, cut, we jumped into it last week and uh, we're looking at uh, the truth of what we, re- we see. And we see this book, the Psalms, it's, uh, it's the worship book for Israel. You have in your hands, if you're holding a Bible as this, or maybe you have it digitally arranged, but you have the word of God and it, it's Genesis to Revelation. It's functionally set in two portions. There's a division, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's declaring and speaking and, and leading you to the need of the Savior and the revelation of who that Savior would be. Fulfilled in the New Testament, we have Jesus, who is the Savior of humanity, God in human form. So we have these two beautifully knit together. Now, in the Old Testament, we have the history of how God deals with difficult people and with people that are not difficult. The difficult people, I would say, collectively would be Israel. Could we agree? I think it's very, very polite and very gracious and kind to say that they were difficult. Because as God showed his faithfulness, they continued to resist what he would do. Well, God give them a, a collection of things, of, of expression of poetry and song and history and, and emotion and experience. And it's called the Psalms. And the Psalms are the worship book for Israel. Inside of the Psalms, we, we see the, it, the declaration of God's faithfulness. We recognize his patience, his provision, his protection unveiled as we open this up and dig into it we see his majesty we become more aware of his love a greater understanding of his wisdom our hearts touched by his mercy and his justness but even with all that as we read and look at what happened with israel and what that reveals to them and to us we know that even with all that's preserved and observed in the Psalms, Israel was reluctant to stay close or to draw close to God. Now we do know from scripture, there were times they shouted joyfully for sure. I could reference to you uh, in Genesis, I mean in Exodus, after God has delivered this family that grew rapidly And now it's functionally a nation being removed from captivity, taken from under the the overbearing hand of Israel, I mean of of Egypt. Israel is being removed and led, and they arrive at this obstacle, a natural barrier, the Red Sea. And as they arrive there, God shows himself faithful, and he opens it up, and they cross, and their enemies are literally swallowed in the sea. And they're on the other side experiencing the, the, the divine intervention of the living God. And Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Going on to to sing that your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. So here we have this amazing, joyful expression of God's provision and God's taking care of them. That song actually 
In Revelation 15, it mentions this song of Moses as well, singing so joyfully. But it would seem in between the times of great deliverance, there was an attitude of complacency, a wandering away from God. Why would people wander away from God who watched this Red Sea of experience? They were there. Well, I think the reality is it's really for all of us. It's just similar things. Where life happens, do you realize, you do, because you're told that the nation that was, the people that were brought from captivity and seen this, we, we know that they complained to God. And we know that that first generation, they passed away in the wilderness. They died. Death is not just something since the Industrial Revolution. Death is a personal experience that people, that people observe. You know, maybe what was happening, maybe they wandered a little bit, maybe they were complacent because, you know, there was personal difficulty. The Israelites who were rescued and carried past the Red Sea, they faced personal difficulty. They faced illness. They faced death. They had misunderstanding. I don't know that we assimilate or associate, you know, what we read sometimes and what they went through. There was there were some tough times, just like the reality for humanity. When death entered the world at man's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, death entered the world, and death is always disturbing. Death will not be comforting. You, you might find some logical reckoning where someone is suffering, and you can say they're in a better place. But it's still disturbing to you. It's still difficult for you. It's still a hardship. And I think that the Israelites, you know, hey, they've seen the hand of God. They experienced the touch of God. They knew the provision of God. But they also experienced the pain of humanity, the pain of life as we know it. And so I believe at that time it's difficult to draw near to God, just like with us. Um, perhaps it was, you know, those things. But Israel was prone to do what most Christians do, draw to the distractions of this world rather than draw near to God. And and I don't believe it was conscious. I don't think they said, I just don't want this anymore. Well, some it was, maybe. But think about this. We, We tend to look away from God all the while saying that we're actually looking to God. It's kind of like someone who says they're listening but they're actually giving their primary attention to their phone. Not that that would happen. First service people, I think, are really guilty of this. But not second service people. Never would be you guys, of course. You know. But it's like this. Uh-huh. 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 Who are you giving your attention to? You're saying, I'm listening. I'm, I hear you. I hear you. But who are you giving your attention to? You're not rudely, well, it's debatable, but you're not really rudely, like, totally ignoring them, but you're, you're giving your attention to this distraction. And I think it's a, it's a convicting, humorous picture for us, but I think that takes place at times. We're not trying to ignore someone, but something has captured our attention. Something has drawn us over here. We tend to look away. We tend to say, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Think of it this way. It takes awareness, honesty, and effort to stay close to God. 
You're born again. You experience his forgiveness. You realize your sin. You agreed with God concerning your personal sin. The Bible tells us when we agree with him, when we acknowledge that he is God and only he can forgive us, when we're brought into this born-again experience, we're a new creation. We're, we're, things are different inside, from the inside. And sometimes we think that's it subconsciously. Okay, I'm, I'm born again. I'm good. I'm saved. I'm saved. I, I hear people say this. I'm, I know I'm saved in the midst of their struggles because they're saying to themselves, I know I'm saved, so it shouldn't be this way. But what we want to understand is, is, yes, it's still difficult. It takes awareness, honesty, and effort to grow. It just doesn't happen automatically. And so consider awareness. It's noticing that you are less interested, distracted, wandering. I want to be aware. If I'm wandering off course, I want to know, I want to be aware of that. I don't want to listen to myself. Sometimes I would say, oh, it's okay. I'll get back to it later. I'll read tomorrow. I'll pray the next day, whatever it may be. I want to be you know, aware. Like, whoa, wait, why, why, why is that come up? Why is that there? I want to be honest. No excuses, just own it. I believe honesty is the most essential part of intimacy with God. Honesty is the most essential part for intimacy with God. And what I mean is just being honest with yourself. Can you be honest with yourself about your relationship with God? You don't need to be honest with people. They'll probably get in your grill for maybe the wrong reasons. But what if we're honest with God and say, you know, God, I, I, I think I'm doing it for this reason, but ultimately, really, I, I'm just kind of complacent. I'm a little bit lethargic. I, I just don't care. You think he's going to go, what? I thought you were all in. You, no, what? You slacker. He's not going to say that. He knows you. He knows me. He goes, I know. Yeah, I know. But this is what he does. I know. Let me lead you in a different way. Let me show you a different measure. Let me show you a different manner by which you can live. And that's where the effort comes in. It's not works to gain the relationship. It's a response to the love in the relationship to where we then respond to God. Because you know, and I know, it's difficult to break habits or change patterns. The ideas are great. The inspiration is amazing. The doing it is difficult. The first few moments, the first week, whatever. But carrying it through and following on course is difficult. And so if we're just honest, like... I just got to be real with God. Perhaps this is why Psalm 139 is so important for you, for me. He knows us inside and out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows you perfectly and loves you more than you can even imagine. Psalm 139 speaks to God's knowledge of mankind, the individual, not just the species. So let's read Psalm 139. We're going to read 1 through 24. So an overlap from last week. We're going to then pick up again in verse 13 and carry through the end of the particular psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, oh Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. 
And almost if the thought of, the, of David, the psalmist, would be, where would I go to escape this? Then he realizes and declares, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, nor the night as shine, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So as I mentioned, let's go back to verse 13 and overlap a little bit. And then work our way through the latter part of the psalm. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Life begins at conception. God is fully aware of every person. The, the magnitude of his memory and his capacity, you can't, even, you can't measure it. You have no reference. But we're told here that he is aware. Before we were even covered in the womb is the picture he paints and tells us. As a nation, we have our own opinion hide behind a title of science, but we lie to ourselves. We have this thing recently, this decision, Roe v. Wade, uh, resurrected from the 70s, using abortion as the title, claiming that's the issue. It's not the issue. Roe v. Wade has, it's not about abortion. It's about life. That's the problem. See, we want to get into a secondary discussion. Well, what is about the case of this? And what about the situation like that? And what about the scenario here? No, when does life begin? Let's solve that. You solve that, these other volatile, emotional, almost irrational logic will not be the main issue. But if the main issue is, well, well it just depends. No, it's when does life begin? Because if we recognize when life begins, we're not so quick to decide how to end it. When we recognize where it be, when it begins, then what are we doing? We're dealing with the real issue. And the real issue is in our, in our world is that life begins at conception. 
Now we can reason, we can work through, we can argue, whatever. But let's decide that. Can you agree? Can we see? Even in the 70s, when this whole thing was brought forth, there was a covert movement to pursue pleasure with no expense and to pay and have no price to pay. And I'm not going to get into all because I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to take a side on all this. I'm just saying, let's just see what the word of God says. He formed us. He knew us. He, he brought life even before we as people were aware. This is really fascinating if you think about it. Because we do have something that David did not have. We have what I call a visual verification of the truth of God. What I mean is, he didn't have technology and science and imagery. He couldn't look and go, OMG, that is a baby. That Look at that. I mean, look at in weeks in, and then it's a baby. See, we have the visual verification. Boy, how great is our accountability when our eyes will declare the truth of a life? And so here, David, he's, he's working off just the truth. This is, and, and God put this on his heart. He, he speaks of how he is fearfully, and that's reverently. He, there's a reverence and awareness to life and how wonderful it is. And the result, the, the, the right, the rational, the logical conclusion would be, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I will praise you, God, for how I am made, for who I am. You know, let's see if you guys are more flexible than second ser- or first service. So what I want you to do, so you're sitting there, you don't have to get up. Just, I want you to look at each, look around at different people. Ready? Go. I'm eyeballing you to see if you're stubborn. Okay, so you're pretty much doing it. So guess what? How many identical twins did you notice? And if you found identical twins, you could ask them and they'll tell you, <laughs> we ain't identical. We have different, it's so amazing. And you could do that across with every human being, millions upon millions upon millions of people, and you will not find one or two that are exactly the same. We are beautifully, uniquely, and individually made and known by God. Let's not let ourselves be caught in comparison and trying to be similar to someone else. Be who he's made you to be. You're beautiful and wonderfully made. That's, what the, that's not a pastor's like, go team go thing. This is just a reality. This is what God says. Marvelous are his works. We should praise him just for the life that we have. And some of us are older like, well, but I ache. You're breathing. Okay. I mean, don't, don't, it's like, there's a point you just stop and go, man, God, you're amazing. The complexity, the, the, the uh, and I don't have time to get into all of it. But I'm just thinking about our, our whole anatomy and you can do this on your own, but just study how the eye evolved. Oh, good one. Thank you. It didn't. It can't. It couldn't. You, you don't go, you know, it just doesn't work that way. We're, we're beautifully made. There's parts of us that you could never argue that it just morphed out of a mud hole in the magic of time and made itself. It doesn't happen that way. We are beautifully and wonderfully made. And I think if we can hold on to that, we'll understand the even, and he uses it poetically in verse 15. You know, even when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, that's not saying there's a pre-human assembly line down below somewhere, you know what I'm saying? That's poetic. What that's declaring to you and me is a place that you don't understand. There's things beyond you and your human experience where God brought together, he, he, he brings us into being, 
We didn't pre-exist. We're not like waiting for some body. He just literally brought us into being. And what we know that to be, what we understand according to his word is at conception. His eyes seen us. He knows the days that we have. He knows exactly the number of our days. As challenging as that can be in some situations and crazy in others, he just, he just he knows everything. Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that there's some being called God, some guy, some, some entity called Jehovah out there that knows everything about every individual, every person that's ever existed? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. How can that be? I don't know. I'm not God. I can't contain God. I can't limit God to my range of understanding. I can't fit him into my fence work. You know, can you take a half a liter bottle? You guys have those. I got one right here. Could you just fill this up with me? I, there's a 400-gallon truck out there. I just need all that put in here. Use pressure if you need to. <laughs> what are you gonna, what's going to happen? It's going to blow up. You don't have the capacity to contain the knowledge and wisdom of God. That doesn't mean I shirk or draw back from it. I just go, man, you, you, God, said, I know all of the sparrows. Not one falls that I don't know. You know what a sparrow is? It's, it's, an, LB, it's an LBB. It's a little brown bird. They're all over the planet. They got different English sparrow, this sparrow, that sparrow. They're just, they're just little brown birds. And when they pass, one falls, he's aware of it. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, no, it gets better. Even, he says to you and me, so we could understand this, this amazing reality. I know the hairs of, on your head. Well, the lack of for some guys. I know every one of them. Now think about what's being conveyed there. You produce hair throughout your life beyond what you would even try to number of your own head. And he's saying, I know all of every, I know. Do you see what's, it's not just, when Jesus said that, he's not just being, you know, poetic, He's conveying the truth that you do not know the limitations or capacity of the all-knowing God. You can't, you can't shrink him down that small. The Bible says of, of the universe, God's like, fling! He just broadcasted into existence in order. To conveying to you, like he, that's amazing. That he can just broadcast it, make it come into place. So I encourage you, know God has created you beautifully and wonderfully and knows everything about you. Carrying us to verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Not just precious are, is the believer, the one who seeks Jehovah, to be thinking of the thoughts, but how the, the content, the quality, and the number of those thoughts that are personal. It's very personal here. He's not saying, I just thank you, God, that you care about the people on the planet. Generally, yes, but more importantly, as the wording says, very personal. How great is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would be more than number in sand on the sea. When I awake, I'm still with you. Do you know and believe that God loves you? Because I believe it affects how you approach him. I believe it affects how you process life. I feel it affects how you handle hurt and hardship and all types of distresses. And I believe it's not something that we arrive at, but that we grow in. We start learning it. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8 as a, uh, an exhortation and encouragement after bringing the, the church through some, some very difficult doctrine and some very essential things. You know, God brings this truth that is so important that we understand. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I stop there. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? I want to present a thought. Who shall separate you? Perhaps you. Is it possible that Dan's perception about God is the biggest interference to knowing God, to him knowing God? And you could insert your name. Perhaps it's our own perception about his thoughts, his opinion, that we have to say, well, wait a minute. What does the word of God say? What do his actions show? What, do I, what can I know? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? He gave his own son. He came and died for our sins. He suffered beyond you what you're even, we could even imagine. And he did that compelled by love because of his love for you and love for me. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for your sake we, ki- we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So he, he's identifying that in the human experience and in even for Christians, as he's writing this, this, God reveals this letter to the Romans, distress, persecution, those are things that happen, just like the children of Israel. Those are things that people go through. For, they're literally being killed for the cause of Christ. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am, and I would say it this way by translation, I am thoroughly convinced. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's springboard back to Psalm 139. Oh, how precious are his thoughts towards you and me. And it's more than just his thoughts. How beautiful are his actions. The idea of love, the concept and the discussion of love is manifested in a much greater way than conversation, than even documentation. It's manifested in a life where God came, died for our sins, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, and rose again conquering death and hell. That is, you know what I'm saying? Because you could think nice about somebody and do nothing, but the thoughts we're speaking of here are action-based. They're verified and proven. Leading us into this next section, we already read it, oh, that you would slay the wicked, and he talks about those who are enemies of God and, and a hatred, if you could say. Let's just, let me get, speaks to some things in a, in a broad sense. You can't love God and love the ways of evil. Can we agree on that? You can't love God and love the ways of evil. Love requires Discernment, which is, I, I think of it that way, I, I would say it, describe it like this. It's being able to tell what is right and what is not right. Love requires that. 
It requires it in a, in a sibling relationship. It requires it in a friendship relationship, a marriage relationship. You've you got to be able to discern what's right and wrong, in a sense, correct? So it requires it. You can't love God and love the ways of evil. You just can't. Consider 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what we have throughout Scripture is the conveying of this truth. Love God, love sinners, hate sin. And there is a quandary, a difficulty that you would hate sin and love sinners. See, when we pray, when we're aware of what Jesus has done for us, when we pray, we're aware, I think, that some will not respond to the love of God. There are some people on this planet, they will be determined to steal and to kill and to destroy anything and anyone that reminds them of God. They may not consciously agree with that. They may not logically declare that, but their actions express it. That anything, you were created in the image of God. And there are some people who hate you because of what you believe. And they won't maybe phrase it that strongly to your face, but because of who you are, because of your, 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 you're created in the image and likeness of God. And they're just, they're going to hate it. I have found myself praying, God, you know them. You know these enemies of yours. And David puts the emphasis, not the enemies of David, the enemies of God. And the enemies of God will express their hatred to his children. And so here, you know, David understood it. And so I find myself praying, God, you, you know them. You know their hatred. You know, but I don't know things. I don't know if this hatred is now changing them in such a way that they're now soil for the seeds of the gospel to bear fruit in. I don't know if they're right at the edge of conversion and coming to Christ because some of our life stories tell that. Where we lived in hatred, we, we learned hatred, and then we encountered love, and we radically and beautifully were born again. But we don't know what's going to take place. So here is my prayer. God, I... I don't know them, but you do. But if they're going to continue to hurt people, they're going to continue to interfere with the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they're not going to be responsive, if they're going to constantly go against your word, take them out. Take them out. Now, I don't, I don't say that because I hate that person. I just, God, you know whether they're going to respond or not. Could you move them away? Could you deal with this? Could you take them out? However, that would be worked out. Because you and I have a responsibility and a calling and an opportunity. We want his truth to go forth. And there are people in this world, in this community, in your zone, so to speak, that are absolutely and openly contrary to the truth of Jesus Christ. And they're enemies. You know, David, in verse 22, he says, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. It's an interesting thing. David looked into the face of those who literally tried to kill him. He's a king. 
monarchy, one, one monarchy, so to speak. And somebody says, well, let's just kill that one and we'll take his place. Well, you understand that historically. If you've read through the Old Testament, you see that happen frequently. That there was a threat and people literally were trying to kill him. And as a king, he knew the fierceness of those who were set on death and hatred. And he had a responsibility to protect those who were under his leadership. See, that's where it gets complicated for some people. There's the perception that we're just, just kind of just let, just lay back, wait, see what God will do. Yes, I agree. But sometimes it's, it's not that complicated to, to discern the will of God. There were times that David took action to protect and to preserve the lives of those God had placed under his care. He took a stand. He had to. He couldn't be like, oh, wow, somebody just grabbed one of the children and is running away. Well, I just pray, God, you be with them. I mean, seriously, it's a ludicrous, almost rude example, but let's just face it. There's the responsibility, whether you're uh, uh, someone who's watching over children in a, in a quote, babysitter, childcare position, or a mom who's watching over kids, a dad who's taking on the responsibilities of a family, you, you fill in the blanks. A king, there's a responsibility that comes, and there's actions that got to be there. David did not say, God, you protect them. I'll just sit in my palace and pray. He had to take action at times. He had to be very forceful. David knew his enemies and acted responsibly in protecting those God had put him in charge of. And we have to work that out individually, how that looks. How do we protect when, when certain enemies come at us and certain things have happened that are very violent in type and nature? Do we stand in the hallway and wait? What do we do? We have to figure it out. We have to sort it out because here this is the thing. As I've said, whether you're shepherding somebody that, you know, little kids that you're just a childcare provider or you're a, a parent or a pastor, you're shepherd, you have responsibilities over people. Shepherds take care of sheep. That, that's the, the ultimate point to it. Wolves kill sheep. You better know the difference. You better be able to understand. Don't get in a lot or some, some like contemporary debate about how you're supposed to just be passive and compliant. I, I don't see that from scripture. We're not to be aggressors, but let's face it. We're to utilize the resources that we have to protect the people God has entrusted to us and given us leadership over. And see, I went around that and I never even mentioned the second amendment, did I? Or guns, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna be talking about them. <laughs> You gotta figure it out. You see what I'm saying? I, I hate it when everybody says, well, it has to be like this and you have to be this and you have to do this. Listen, all I know is there's enemies of your loved ones and you may have been given the responsibility to protect them and you got to figure out how you're gonna do it. Like I say, I'm not a big aggressor guy. I'm not a big go, you know, take the world type mentality. I believe God's got this thing. But you and I, we've been given responsibility. And if we can't understand who is an enemy in, motion, in action, I, I, if someone comes at me or my family or whatever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to base on their actions. And I'm going to respond according to what their actions draw me, cause me to do. And that, that, I don't, I'm not going to study their state of their soul. I'm going to deal with the aggressive action of an enemy. I don't, I'm not saying I, I got all the answers. But there's got to be a mindset 
that we're like, hey, wait a minute. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to protect. Uh, anger response is an emotion. It's not a sin. The Bible says in Psalm 4, I think, uh, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and sin not. Anger is an emotion that causes us to do, to do something. So we want to make sure that that is a constrained action, a controlled action, a godly action. An emotion is, is something that God has given us for a purpose. So I belabor that a little because we really don't know how we're going to handle situations. But we can actually know the word of God and know our responsibilities. And to a certain degree, exercise a, a thought process that we then have a greater understanding of a controlled response. Does that make sense? So moving on to verse 23, because this is, I believe, ties that all together. It ties it all together. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Put me to the test. to Test me so that I would know about me. Test, try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I started by mentioning for spiritual growth and true intimacy with God, there needs to be awareness, honesty, and effort. Awareness, search me, O oh God. It's not that God's going to try to see if he can find something wrong. It's the humility that says, Lord, I don't really trust me. I trust you. So would you shine your light of truth? Would you examine me, the word speaks of, and, and reveal to me anything that you see out of sync, out of step, out of place? Is it time for me to learn this truth? There's sometimes it's not time to learn things. First graders don't learn trigonometry. You get it. They learn basic math because it's not time to learn some of those more complex things. And there's a parallel spiritual. There's time to learn things. Search me, oh God. Help me to understand. Examine. Try me. And that's the test. And know my anxieties. That word there that the New King James translates as anxieties literally speaks of disquieting thoughts. Have you ever tried to settle in and just have some quiet time. And not only do you somehow try to environmentally control the external, but as you settle in, there's just thoughts that are internal that interrupt your quiet. They just, they're just they're unsettling sometimes. And so he's saying, search me, O oh God, know my heart, but me test these things, reveal these things, and know my anxieties. Literally, he's requesting, could you reveal those things that are disruptive and disturbing to me that interrupt my, my time with you, so to speak? God, see, what's so important? You see humility, transparency, intimacy, honesty, and trust. David, modeling for you and me, we believe that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And because I know he's good and I believe he's faithful, God, could you just, like, do a quick review of me and reveal what I need to know and give me the humility to choose to grow, that I can, I can know you more. I would just summarize that psalm in this way or that verse 23 and 24. Request a search. Examine. God, I request that you would examine my heart. I want to respond to the test. If a test reveals something, then I want to respond to that conclusion. You know, teachers are not diabolical, and they just determine every throw so often we're going to do a pop quiz and a quick test just to prove you're stupid. 
That's not why they do it. They do it with a much greater purpose for you to come to a realization of where you're at in the subject, in the topic, or whatever it may be. So that is actually for your benefit if you respond to the known information. If I react to it, because respond to the test, to to what was revealed, follow his lead. See, if I respond to the test like, oh, I know how to fix that, I've actually not put my trust in him as much as I put my trust in my own processes. As opposed to saying, lead me in the way everlasting. God, I need you. We sang that, what a wonderful song. I need you, this very hour, I need you. Is there any hour where you can say, well, not now, but maybe next hour, they're all that way when we realize his faithfulness, his humility. We realize who he is. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's, uh, I'm going to have Greg and Natalie come back up, and we're going to have communion today. Take communion. And I thought, what a beautiful thing to have this psalm, is a, his word preparing our hearts for communion that with humility we would respond to these truths, requesting God to do a continued work in our lives, requesting that he would continue what he started, purifying us and drawing us and strengthening us because of what he's done. So you have a relationship with God because of what God has done for you. You're born again because he brought about the truth to you of your need for forgiveness. It wasn't because you just decided to get religious and start going to church. It was because God brought you into a relationship. So I'd like to pray in that regards, and then um, we'll, have, we'll join in a song of worship together. So if you'd stand with me, we'll pray. We'll prepare our hearts and worship together. And during that song, if you'd like to take communion as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, um, you can just come forward, pick up the elements on either side. There's some in the back as well. And then hold on to those once you get back to your seat and, and I'll come up and we'll pray together. Now, when you get to the table, you may notice something a little different. Um, there's, just, there's two cups together. One has the, the, the bread, one has the juice on top. So you just pick up one cup and you're good. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that you love us so much that you'll shine the light of truth in the deep and dark corridors of our heart, in places and rooms and spaces that we don't even want to look into. But you know, Lord, what we need. And so we just praise you, God, that you purify us, that you cleanse us, that you continue to do your work in our lives. Your word is so powerful to us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're hearing this message or you're here today, and you don't know that you're born again. You know, God's call to you is first and foremost to be born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. He said it very clearly. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So how do you get born again? How do you do that? Well, his word tells us very clear to believe in him. It begins with a simple reality, agreeing that you need God agreeing, God, I need your forgiveness of my sins. I know I've done things wrong. I know there's things I don't even want to talk about but to anyone because I know they're wrong. And so I would ask your forgiveness. I believe that you died for those sins to take away my sin death. I believe that you rose from the grave conquering death and hell and I don't even understand all that. 
but I believe that you are God and I put my trust in you. So give me this new life, this forgiveness that only you can offer. And my other request of you, God, lead me, lead me, O oh Lord. Show me this new life. Show me what it, how it is and how to live it and be my strength, my hope, my very present help in time of need. Oh, thank you, God. God, may that be a continued prayer for each of us, a petition and a request that you would lead us, Lord, in joy and in simplicity, our hope, our Lord and our God. We sing to you, God, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.